you have your Bibles turned to First uh, Timothy, and we are we're now we'll finish up the second chapter today. And I, it's a really interesting passage. It's one of those most interesting passages in all of the Bible. Seriously, um, you know, one of the one of the joys and one of the the the, the, the uh, really uniquenesses of preaching through a book of the Bible is uh, you get to get to verses like this. I mean, normally I wouldn't wake up and say, hey, I think I'll preach this text this morning. Uh, but this is where we are, and it's important, and so we're going to look at it. Uh, as God leads, as we get through First Timothy, and I'm still with you, uh, we'll probably do a different approach to some sermons. We'll probably do maybe the life of Moses, or we'll do the story of Jonah. We'll look at more some narrative stories. But we're going to continue now through the book of First Timothy uh, together. And again, if, if, you know, I realize we've, we've re- rehashed this many times, but that's one of the reasons for going through a book of the Bible is so we really become very, very familiar with it. And certainly Paul is much older than Timothy. He's in prison. He's been through a lot in his life. He's learned a lot in his life. And he put young Timothy in this very difficult situation as a pastor in this church that has some significant problems and that many people in that church don't think Timothy is up to handling it. And so Paul's writing this letter to him to encourage him first to stay, not to leave, and secondly, to battle for the gospel, and then thirdly, how to do it. And so we got into how to do it a couple of weeks ago, and he said, you start out by praying big, expansive prayers for the whole world. You get your mind just off yourself and off your problems at your church and realize that God is at work all around this globe, and that's really important. Get an understanding of who God is, what he's doing, and just quit being so myopic on your own little problems and your own little world and realize you're part of a much bigger plan that God is working to his glory all the time. And then he talks about we're going to start with the men, all right? And you guys have to lift up prayers but with holy hands. In other words, it's not a matter of just praying. You've got to have your heart right. So you've got to be repentant. You've got to confess your sin. And he says you can't be argumentative. You can't be judgmental. You can't be grumpy. We talked all about that, how sometimes that's our default. I was with a, a guy yesterday. He told me, he said, my sons told me that my default mood is angry. That's what they told me. And, you know, sometimes we get that way for a variety of reasons. But that kind of, of anger and, and ugliness does not reflect what's in us if the Spirit of Christ is truly in us. And so he spends a lot of time talking about men. You got to love your wives. You got to care for your wives. You got to be gracious. You, you got to be kind, and you got to quit arguing, and you got to you got to lift up holy hands, man. And he's not talking about literally, phys, you know, that that's something special about that motion. He's just saying your hands have to be clean. You know, you got to open your hands, and you got to have a clean heart. And, and that means we got to spend a lot of time as men in prayer and and pursuing holiness because we battle all kinds of sin in our life. We we battle pride, we battle competitiveness, we battle covetousness. We always want what the next guy's got, right? Only we want it bigger and brighter and, and better. And we, we value our worth and how much we make and what people think of us and how big our truck is and all that kind of stuff, right? You've got to find your worth in Jesus. You've got to be happy in who you are and content in yourself. And you've got to love your family. And he says, you're not going to, look, if you're going to try to fix a church, you've got to, guys have to step up and say, it's not Timothy's responsibility to fix this. It's our responsibility. We, we've got to come with holy hands before God. And now he moves into talking about the women. And, he, and we're gonna, this is a great passage, and I'm, I'm really, am truly excited to, uh, to unpack it because it, it's often one, you do one or two things with it. Most of us, 
we overlook it, we just read it and go, I don't quite understand that, so I'm just going to go on to chapter 3, or we maybe misunderstand it and it causes us a lot of problems, okay? So let's look at it correctly today, all right? So we did talk about verse 9. We'll start with there. Also, the women are to dress themselves in modest clothing with decency and good sense, not with elaborate hairstyles, gold pearls, or expensive apparel, Amen, guys? That's great. But with uh, expensive apparel, that was a joke. But, but with good works, as is proper for women who profess to worship God. And we talked last week that there's nothing in the Scripture that says, there's nothing in the Scripture, that was quick, wasn't it? There's nothing in the Scripture that says wearing your hair a certain way or wearing a certain kind of jewelry will assure you a place in heaven or will send you to hell. That's not anywhere in the Scripture. Paul is talking about here in the context, just like he, listen, just like he was talking about in the context of the culture in which those men live, if they're seen in, as normal guys in that culture, guys who argue and fuss and fight and have to be right all the time, have to come out on top all the time, Paul's saying, you're not speaking of the gospel. You're not showing glory to Christ. You're not revealing that something about you has changed. Mainly, guys, listen, this ties to the women. Guys, if you have to always be right, you have to always win the argument, you have to always be made much of, then your value and your worth is found in what people think of you, not what Jesus has done for you. So you're not a testimony to Jesus. And he's saying the same thing to the women here. If your value and your worth is found on what people think of you, by the way you wear your hair, by the clothes you wear, if you want to stand out, if you want people to look at you and go, wow, she's got some money, she must be, he's saying that's sending the wrong message. Your value and worth is not found in what you put on yourself, it's found in what's in you, all right? That's what he's saying. And we live in a culture, as we said, where women are absolutely put upon to look a certain way and to, and to have a certain look, and, and, it's just, and, and the church is a place where we, we love each other as we are and, and we accept each other as we are because Jesus accepts us as we are. And so we spent some good bit of time last week talking about how that's important. And so he's talking here not about the fact, you can, look, you can braid your little girl's hair, you can braid your hair, you can braid grandma's hair, that's all okay. Um, but if you dress in such a way that you're trying to draw attention to yourself because you're insecure about who you are, that's a problem, all right? And listen, if that's the problem you have, there isn't any amount of, any amount of hair braiding and jewelry going to fix that, all right? That's the adversary coming at you saying, you don't wor- you're not worth much. You've got to worry about what people think about you. And uh, so, yeah, anyway, that was last week's sermon. My wife says, you know, you preach him three times. And I said, well, I know. All right. Verse 11, though, he moves from the outward appearance of what... And again, he's just trying to say within the culture, because I do need to say, for those of you who weren't here or don't remember, within the culture he's talking about here in Ephesus, if women wore their hair in braids, if they wore a lot of gold jewelry, he was saying something about their morality. All right? They were making a statement to the culture about their morality. And Paul is saying, we want to make a statement to the culture that says we are different than that. So whatever you might wear that would make a statement about your lower moral standards, don't do that if you're a follower of Jesus, men or women, all right? That's, that's what he's saying. Are we all in agreement on that? All right. Pearls and gold are all right, so you can buy your wife pearls and gold. Cultured pearls, probably. All right. Verse 11, this, this has probably been used to, 
to abuse women in the church maybe more than any other verse in the Bible. You never pull a verse out of the Bible and build your theology and your philosophy around it. You say, well, what about John 3.16? Well, you can find John 3.16 from Genesis to the map in the back. John 3.16, I can give you a hundred places where Jesus is going to redeem us, where we're promised a Messiah, Isaiah 53. John 3.16 is not some that sticks out there by itself. It's part of everything. The problem you get into with, with with really weird theology and, and taking stuff out of context, is taking one verse and then saying, well, see, it says, you've got to know what, you absolutely have to know the context, and more importantly, you let Scripture interpret Scripture. So you pull this out and you go, okay, I see what this says by itself, but, it, but it's not the only verse God gave us. All right? He's given us an entire Bible so how does this verse fit within the entire Bible? And it's really not hard to see once we look at it. But the verse says, I do not allow a woman to teach or have authority. Over. See, verse 11, a woman is to learn quietly with full submission. And Paul says, I don't allow a woman to teach or have authority over a man. Instead, she is to remain quiet. Well, that does seem a little odd, doesn't it? Well, let's think about it for a minute. Actually, he's talking about this situation in this place. There's actually women who did teach, and Paul knew them. Lydia drew people together. And, uh, you know, Paul used her and her Bible study literally to see the city of Philippi have a church planted there. Priscilla and Aquila, you know, they were teaching. I mean, that's not the case. He's talking here about, remember the context. The context is the church, this church is dysfunctional and it's lost, it's losing and it has lost its reputation for the gospel. Now, in the first century, women were property. Maybe no more than that. And, and you had no rights as a woman. And you had to do whatever your husband said, and if he wanted to divorce you, he could divorce you. I mean, you, you, you had no rights. You couldn't, in, in, in a synagogue, you couldn't speak up. My goodness, you couldn't, you couldn't speak up in a synagogue. You, if you were Jewish, you, you couldn't interrupt a, a rabbi. You couldn't even go speak. I mean, there's so many, we could spend all morning talking about how women, yet here comes the gospel, here comes the, 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 the Christians, and they, they say, hey, at the foot of the cross, there is no male or female. We are all the same, Right? And so what Christianity does in the first century, it really comes in, empowers and frees women to say, you know, you, you, are, you are equal to, 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 your, to the men in, in, the, in the ministry and in the view of Christ and in, in the gospel that we all have to proclaim. And we're going to talk about roles that the church gives and the scripture gives, but there's no doubt that first century Christian church was a place where women had more freedom than perhaps any other institution in the first century, all right? They really did. They were valued. They, 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 they were seen as, as, as people that Jesus died for and cared for and, and loved and had redeemed and was calling to himself in a world where women were not considered important at all. The church saw them as people that Jesus loved and cared for and redeemed and worth pursuing salvation and finding their ministry and finding their roles. 
It was really important, really different. And again, in a synagogue, they could never speak, but in the church situation, in a Bible study, in a lesson, they were, they were free to talk and free to speak, and apparently, that's causing some problems. And so here, he's saying in verse 11, a woman has learned quietly with full submission. Here's, here's what we're doing. Again, we, we look at the totality of Scripture, and, and Paul's writing a letter to Timothy about some problems in this church. And, and we only are hearing his answers. We're not seeing the problems that were expressed to him. Does that make sense? So in reading the mail, obviously in this church, there was a problem with some issues that had to do with some of the women who were simply distracting from the teaching. Okay, Maybe it was the fact that they for the first time, had all this freedom, and they were perhaps abusing that in some way. But he says, a woman is to learn quietly with full submission. Again, part of the culture of that day was that that, that, that was how women were to behave and to act. And he's just trying to simply say here, don't, don't act and don't behave in a way that dishonors God and does not bring glory to him. Now, I want to make it really clear. That God has an order for gender. There are three things you can do with God's word. You can ignore it as nothing more than Harry Potter and, and, and Star Trek and go, it's kind of interesting, beautiful language, but it has no impact. It's not true. It's just, it's just nothing. And just ignore it and live your life however you want. That's one option. The other option is you can say it's God's word. It's inerrant. It was breathed by the Holy Spirit. It's true. And so it It's authoritative in my life, and I will conform to it. Or thirdly, you can do what most people who are attending church today in North America and Europe and many other parts of the world do. You can say, well, I like some of it, but I don't like the rest of it, and I want to keep what I like and then ignore what I don't like, or keep what I like or change what I don't like. Most people, even in North America, don't want to get rid of the whole Bible we like some parts. We like angels, right? I mean, doesn't everybody like angels? Don't you want to have an angel around you? And you got all the angels in your house and spend all that money grandma did on precious moments angels? You want angels around, right? We love angels. We want a heaven. My goodness, we want heaven. I, 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 I oftentimes have preached revival, or preached revival, preached funerals for people who didn't have a pastor. I think I've told you that before. I see that as a real ministry. And this, the support of this sermon isn't to talk about that, but when I gather with people who don't have a pastor and their mother dies or their grandmother dies or their spouse dies and they have no pastor, not a, live in the most churched country in the world and they've lived there all their lives and they don't even have a person they can go to when someone dies, so they come to a complete stranger that the funeral home recommends. And you know the one thing all of them want to know is grandma in heaven? They don't want to get rid of heaven. They don't want to get rid of angels. 
And they even like prayer. It's amazing how many people in North America will tell you, I pray, but they never go to church. <laughs> you know, I just... Everybody likes to pray, whatever that means. Everybody likes angels, and everybody likes heaven. But then when we get to what the other things the Scripture says, we don't like those, so we'll just sort of pick and choose and ignore and rewrite and say, well, that doesn't mean anything for now. And that's where we really get off the rails. Frankly, in many ways, it's easier to witness to and share the gospel with someone who says, I don't believe any of this, and, and I let the Holy Spirit draw them and reveal them the truth of it, than someone who says, I believe some of it, but I don't believe the rest of it. That, the, Satan has really done a number on those folks, all right? Really done a number on them. You, 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 know, you know the first sin, right? In all of, all of, all of the galaxy, all, all of the universe. The first, the first sin, right? You know what that was, right? It was when Satan came to Eve and he said, what? Most of what God says is, is you're out, but, you know, God's true. Yeah, that, he's, he's not denying that God created the universe. He's not denying that God created the garden. He's not denying God didn't put that tree in there. He's not denying God didn't speak to Adam and Eve. He doesn't come to Eve and go, you know, God doesn't exist. It's all just a hoey. He doesn't say that. He says, yes, but he said, you know what you think God said? He probably didn't really mean it that way. So why don't you take what God said, and how would you like it to sound, and that becomes the truth. That's the first sin, and it still goes on today. Take what God says. Satan's not saying he doesn't say anything, but, you know, he doesn't really mean it that way. That doesn't make any sense. Make it what you want it to be. That's the first sin. That's still the sin. So God's word makes it clear that he created them, how? Male and female. And he created them, male and female, with two definite roles in life. Now we call that, those of us in in our orthodoxy of Christianity that, that, that we are in as as Southern Baptist, and as we call that, and as many evangelicals across the world, we call that view that men and women have different roles laid out by God. We call that view, listen to this word, it's important, complementarian. What's that mean? They complement each other. Hear me say this. God's word does not say that a man is more important or more valuable than a woman. Nowhere. Just the opposite. Again, you let Scripture interpret Scripture. Jesus sits down and has a conversation with an adulterous woman who's had five husbands and is living in open adultery at the moment, and he spends all morning talking to her. No other rabbi on the face of the earth would do that because Jesus realized she matters. Right? We could go on and on like that. All the women who followed Jesus, all the, those who were there, even the first people to look in the empty tomb were women. The first people to announce the resurrection were women. And even Paul, when he talks about Timothy, he says, the faith that was first in your mother and your grandmother and now is in you. We're complementarian. By that, we mean that they are, they are equal before the Lord. They were equal in importance, and they complement each other because their roles are are different and designed differently. Be frank about it. God didn't make two men. And he didn't make two women. 
He made a man and a woman, and he gave them different roles. Now, on the one hand, we go, well, yeah, that makes sense. But our culture, in determining to distort the truth, has moved to the point that if you really hold that in many places, you're going to be considered bigoted and even a danger. Now, let me be really, really quick to say this. When you're dealing with people who don't know Jesus and aren't followers of Christ, and they have a different view about sexuality and gender roles than you do, your job is not to be mad at them. Your job is not to hate them. That's a sin if you do that. Your job is not to get in their face and argue with them and tell them how they are the ones that are going to ruin everything in the world. Your job is to pray for them and love them. And listen, our job, this is so important. Our job as the church is simply to model for a broken, messed up world what real, healthy relationships in marriage look like. To be a picture of what Jesus meant, what God wanted for men and women. And not to try to argue with them and not to try to belittle them. And not, when we do that, Satan wins. Now, we don't give an inch on what we believe. I'm not suggesting that. Man, we do it with love and compassion. Because they are captive of Satan. He has, he has ruled their hearts. Right? So there's two. We're complementing each other. We're, we're, so I want you to know that. In this particular situation, Paul is saying there is a role for the men in the church. Now listen. Again, if we're going to be consistent. Now, I told you earlier, when, when you're talking about doctrine, there are issues of first importance the atonement, that blood of Jesus saves us from sin. There's no other way to heaven except Christ. Uh, That heaven is real and hell is real and Jesus was born of a virgin and he was all of God and all of man. Those things are first first order. You you, You cannot deviate from those. There's some secondary issues that are also incredibly important. And third level issues. Third level issues, in my opinion, would be, you know, when is Jesus, how is Jesus coming back? You know, what's the nature of the second coming? And I... We'll all figure it out one day when he comes back, right? Until then, it is, there's a lot of, we could look a lot of different ways. But then there's those second level issues that are really important. I mean, they really are important. They're so important that, listen, probably the gathered church has to agree on them or you can't continue to function as a gathered church. You may have to go to a different gathered church. And one of those would be the role of women in ministry, all right? Some of you may have grown up Nazarene. I deal a lot with the Nazarene denomination. I've been able to speak to them recently in some big meetings and really grown to some great men and women in Nazarene. But in the Nazarenes, they'll have women pastors. Some of you may have grown up disciples of Christ. They'll have women's pastors or Methodists or, or even American Baptists will have women pastors. We do not. We're, we're really one of the only real mainline large denominations in, in the world as Southern Baptists who say, no, the role of a senior pastor or elder is only for a man. And the reason we do that is because that is consistent in all of the New Testament. It's one of the things, and I could unpack all of that for you, but that's one of the things. So there is a situation in which the, the, the lead pastor and the elders that you select to pastor you are men. That does not mean that they are more important than the women. It means they have a different job. That's all that means. That God has selected them to do that. And, and it reflects on the authority as God gave Adam. He was the one ultimately responsible for Eve, all right? And in, in the marriage situation, 
Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, and, and you are responsible to the Lord for her, all right? So we have to understand all of that complementary, that on the one hand, women are absolutely elevated and equal to men in, in, in the gospel and in, in faith and in the eyes of the Lord and, and in the value they are to the church, but they complement each other in that the roles throughout Scripture are different. And we don't apologize for that. And, and we, I know sometimes in our culture, I have to say, we feel like we have to apologize for it. We don't. It's what God laid out. So your, your, your lead pastor, your senior pastor, your elders, Scripture makes it clear, husband of one wife, men, not, not, he's never a woman, ever. So here, since there's an order to the church, apparently there's some women in the church who are sort of, they're, they're, they're Turning that upside down. Paul's saying, you've got, you got to get a handle on this, Timothy. You got to, when, people have to know what their roles are in the church, all right? And he says here, I wouldn't let a woman have authority over a man in the church. Now, listen carefully to what I'm saying. I hope I'm not losing you here. I realize this is maybe not the most powerful, exciting message you've ever heard. But this is what he's saying. I would not let a woman have authority over a man. What he means by that is this. I believe, and you can look at the, at, again at the evidence of the Scripture throughout the New Testament, throughout all of the speaking of the church. I mean, there were women in the Old Testament. Deborah was a judge, and Esther, Ruth. I mean, there were very significant women in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, very significant women. So, but here's talking about in the church. Would not let a woman. And so what have authority over men. So if those in ultimate authority are the pastors, the elders, however you select them and whatever you call them, whether you call them pastors or elders or you have a pastor and a group of elders, whatever, that, that group of individuals who you believe God has called to lead the church as pastors, those are men. So I believe what Paul is saying here is I would not put a woman in that position. However, if the men in that position believe that a woman has exhibited godly characteristics and God called to a particular ministry within the church, it's altogether appropriate for them to give her the authority to carry that ministry out. Be that teaching a Sunday school class. Women, I mean, I don't, I've not talked to anybody in this church about this. I mean, I hope I don't get into a big problem here. But, but women can teach Sunday school classes. Women can teach youth, women can teach children, women can lead ministry, because if they do it, they're doing it under the authority of the pastors who've given them that authority. Does that make sense? It's really no more complicated than that. But apparently here in this church, there's been some issues with that, and so Paul says you've got to get a handle on that, all right? And it may be that for the first time in their lives, they've got some freedom they never had before, and perhaps they're abusing it in some way, and that would be actually understandable. And so Paul says, we've got to keep the order that God has designed in this. So he says, that, that's what I would do. Okay, are we good with that? Now we get to it. That was easy compared to what we're going to look at next, all right? All right. He says, I do not allow women to teach or have authority over a man. Again, I think if, if, the, if the man has said that he needs her to teach, then she's not having authority over the man. Does that make sense? or even to teach over him. She's teaching under the authority of a man. Instead, she's to remain quiet. And, and what he means by that is, if she's not been given that authority, 
to do it, then she shouldn't do it. All right? But that's true for a man, too. If you've not been given the authority by your pastors to teach or to lead, then you shouldn't do it. And then we get into, again, for Adam was formed first and then Eve. There again is God's order of things. God designed men and women to be different. God designed men and women sexually. God designed sex. The Bible talks a lot about sex. It really does. It's very explicit about it. It doesn't ignore it. It doesn't act like it's not there. It's all over the place in the Scripture. Who do you think designed it? God. Who do you think has given up and given it to the culture? The church. All right? Sex is, is very much part of God's plan, and, and therefore, for really three reasons. First reason is procreation, and we'll talk about that in a minute, to, to, to continue the, the human race. I mean, the ability that, 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 that God gave, God created Adam out of dust, right? Think about it. He put within man and woman, when they, in marriage, perform that act of sexuality, of sexual love, out of that comes a human. Wow. I mean, that's amazing. That's a gift of God. We could spend all morning talking about life in the womb and the, oh, Awesome. Secondly, it, it's, it's, for, it's for incredible intimacy in marriage. Something that you're doing with nobody else on the globe. It's, it's, it's incredible intimacy of vulnerability with someone else. And thirdly, marriage is a picture of, of the union. Not, uh, it's a picture of the union of a man and a woman together. It's a picture throughout all the scripture, of the union between Jesus and us. He's the groom, we're the bride. Can we just marinate on that a while? I was in Nigro's Westernware store yesterday. I highly recommend it. It's a good place over in Shawnee. It's where I buy all these Ararat shirts. I was in there, it's a little store, crowded, packed with people. And I was in there yesterday, and it was, I couldn't even move. It was packed because there was a wedding party in there. I mean, they weren't getting married at Night Rose, but there was a, it was a, they were going to, this guy was, his, his, his fiance was there, and bless his heart, his fiance's mother was there. And, and so were all of the bride's uh, groomsmen. And so they were going to have a, 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 a wedding that I guess involved Wranglers and Western shirts, you know? And so the bride's mother and the bride were telling these groomsmen and the groom, and they were making them go try on shirts and try on jeans, and it was quite fun to watch. But there was no doubt. I mean, it's a big old burly groom, and there he is having his future mother-in-law tell him to turn around and see what those jeans look like on him. And Why did he do that? Because he loved that girl, all right? He'll do it. He loved, it was so obvious how much he loved her because what he was going through and putting his friends through. Marinate on the fact that that doesn't even, that is such a pale comparison to how much your bridegroom loves you. 
Jesus deeply loves us. We're his church. You're his church. So marriage in the Scripture was given by God, and sexuality was given by God for procreation and for intimacy and, and, and for a sense of, of, of love and commitment and a picture of how much Jesus loves his church. And so when we do away with all that and make, make it something that is comfortable for us and, and we change gender and we change all those things, again, if the world does that, I mean, that's what the world does. We've got to pray for them and love them and model for them what true marriage and those things are like. But God had a plan. He has a design. And it's not because he's like old-fashioned and narrow-minded. It's because he knows. Are you ready? He knows that as wonderful as, as, as sexuality is, it will destroy us if it takes place outside of that loving, committed marriage relationship. He knows that. And so, he says, for Adam was formed first and then Eve. There was an order to it. And it's that order, as I said, you let Scripture interpret Scripture, that order is found from, the, from Genesis to Revelation. It is throughout the Scripture. It doesn't change. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and transgressed. Now, he's talking here about original sin. Now, I told you before, I told you before, these passages have really been used to abuse women in the church. All right? So you, you can't talk, you can't have any role, you, you're, you, you're, you're subordinate. That's not, again, I think I've made that clear. And then this issue of, well, it's all Eve's fault, the fall of man. That's not what he says. Adam wasn't deceived. Here's what he's saying. Listen carefully to what he's saying. If Adam had done what Adam was supposed to do, she wouldn't have been deceived. You understand that? She was deceived because she was in a role she wasn't supposed to have. Adam was supposed to be the decision maker in that. And he gave it up for whatever reason. I don't know. Do men, do you ever give up your decision-making in the house because you'd rather just sit and watch something on television than deal with an issue in your family? Have you ever just kicked the can down the road and let your wife deal with it? And God love her. I'm sure she does a great job sometimes, but that's not the way it's been designed. You are supposed to be active and engaged and involved and praying with her and caring for her and leading her as you follow Jesus. Speaking as one who has tremendous experience in this, is as a husband, I was passionately leading my wife to follow Jesus as I'm following Jesus. Most of the problems I've encountered in my marriage would not have happened. The problem was, Adam didn't do what he was supposed to do. And that's the problem in the church. I mean, why is it so many times I go to dying churches and it's nothing literally as I've said before, but some women who are trying to hold the thing on because the men just let them do it. Women will do it, we'll let them do it. Well, that's not God's way. That's not, you know, yes, they will, and God loved them for doing it, but that's not, guys, you've got to step up and be what God's called you to be. And why do you think that's so hard to do? I'll tell you why. Because Satan doesn't want you to do it because he knows that begins to unravel everything. 
So he makes it clear here that it wasn't Adam who was deceived. It was Eve. I understand that. And transgressed. But again, he's not blaming Eve for the fall of man. He, he's making it clear. He's just said there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's an order of things, and Adam gave up that order. Because you realize, if you go back, even when she listened to the serpent, I don't know where Adam was at the time, and she took the fruit, she offered it to him, and what did Adam do? Did he say, no, we shouldn't do that? Okay, whatever you say, honey. I mean, I don't mean to be silly about that, but that's exactly what he said. Okay, whatever you want. Well, what kind of leadership is that? I mean, that's the problem. Do you realize, when we talk about complementarianism, we each have unique roles. Do you realize that when Adam and Eve kind of distorted that, or not kind of, when they did distort that, and Adam gave up his God-given responsibility, yeah, that's when the fall of man came. And since that worked so good at creation, Satan hadn't quit doing it. I mean, it still works now. Let's just change the rules and do what we think is right in our own minds. And so he ends this with, again, you could say this is confusing, but it's not. Talking about the woman. But she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with good sense. Again, if we interpret Scripture against Scripture, there is nowhere from Genesis to Revelation where it says all women are going to heaven if they bear children. And conversely, the young couple I was talking about this morning, they've had two miscarriages, and hopefully this child will live if God desires it, but if not, that's God's will. But the fact that she can't bear children doesn't mean she's cursed and she's not going to go to heaven. The fact that some women aren't able to bear children is a very crushing thing, and I don't want you to think that that's, that's not what he's talking about. How do you know what he's talking about, Mark? Because I can read the rest of the Bible. That's how I know. I'm not saying I'm getting in his head right here. I can read the rest of it. You can see other things Paul wrote. You can see what James wrote and John wrote. You can see what Matthew wrote. You can see it all in there. You can see what Jesus said. Nothing anywhere says just because a woman has a child, she's gonna, God's going to forgive her of all of her sin. That's not what he's saying. Here's what he's saying. God is what Satan meant for evil. God's going to work it out. And even though... Even though the order of, of things was disrupted in the, in the garden and Eve sinned and Adam sinned and death came into the world, right? Well, what happens if, listen, what happens if death comes into the world? See, before there was no sin, check this out. I mean, I think you know this. So there was no death. So Adam and Eve weren't going to die. <laughs> the wages of sin is death. So now they physically die. Well, if they physically die... How does creation keep going? Well, you have to have some way for new humans to come. And so God says, you know what? Yeah, it was Eve who, who tasted of the fruit and sin came into the world. But you know what? It's also through her, through her, through the woman. Talk about complementarian. Talk about different roles. Men, it ain't through us that babies come. Through the woman. She's the one that carries it for nine months. She's the one that gives birth. She's the one that nurtures that child. But he says in faith and love. Feeds her from her breast. She's the one 
cares for that baby. And it was through her that humanity didn't end. It continued. But more importantly than that, and listen to this very carefully, the moment that humanity fell, that all who would follow, Adam and Eve and all who would follow, were going to be cursed with sin. I don't have time this morning to unpack that as I would like to, but they are going to be cursed with sin. We are all of humanity is falling. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You know that verse, right? And the wages of sin is death. And it is appointed unto man one time to die, and after death the judgment. We're all condemned because we've all sinned. And you go back, well, it's because, you know, Adam and Eve, because of Eve sinned. And, God's, and Paul says, yes, that's true, but that's not the end of the story, Eve. It is through women that, that children are born. You, you carry the children. You love your faithful as parent, as a mother. Children are born. But more importantly, ready? It is through a woman, Mary, that ultimately salvation would come that would completely correct all that Satan had disrupted in the garden. That's what he's talking about. It is, you want to talk about, you want to talk about the role of men in church? Yes, men, listen, men are, men are, men are the, the lead pastors. They're the elders in the home. The man is responsible to Jesus to lead his family well. And if he does that, the wife is responsible to follow. Yes, there are roles. But here, as he wrapped this up, rather than putting women down, Paul is saying, but it is through a woman that salvation came to know reality. Because Jesus was conceived not by a man, but by the Holy Spirit and placed in a woman's womb. Mary, this young, innocent, virgin girl, Her womb was the place that the God of the universe grew from inception of the Holy Spirit to a baby ready to be delivered. And it was Mary who delivered him as mothers have delivered babies for centuries and cleaned him up and held him close and fed him and cared for him. And in those first few months, made sure he was all right and fed him and stayed up with him. And, and as a child, as he walked, and you know where I'm going with all of that. That's what Paul is saying. There are unique roles for men and women in marriage and in the church. And we are to complement each other. And one is not more important than the other. And yes, we can look and say, you know, when those roles got mixed up, mixed up then ultimately sin and all kinds of things came. And, but yet God in his wonderful, wonderful wisdom, he, he had the women be the one through which humanity continued. And it was through a woman's womb through which God came into the world and Jesus lived a sinless life and died a substitutionary death and ultimately will crush the head of the serpent under his heel. So if you just look at this text as a man and you go, all right, then we have authority over women, you're you're a knucklehead. Because that's not what this text is saying. This text is saying God has a complementarian role for men and women. And if we stay in those roles, God gets glorified and our lives are simpler. And when we leave those roles, God does not get glorified and our lives get really complex and complicated. 
But even when we leave those roles and our lives get complicated, as Adam and Eve did, God isn't through with us. He will still find a way if we are repentant, and he will take, and he brought through Eve and all women that were to follow. Listen, I've got to end with this. One day... You and I are, if you're redeemed, if you're here this morning and you've repented of your sin and Jesus has saved you, one day you will absolutely stand around the celestial throne. One day your voice will join millions upon millions upon millions upon millions of believers who've come to faith in Jesus and have been redeemed and have a place in heaven prepared just for them. And we will join in the singing of, of, of his praises and it'll be the most glorious thing. And when you look around, you realize that every single person around that throne was born of a woman and is glorifying God. That's what that text means.